Hi and welcome to episode 87 of How to Wow and episode 14 of our special pop-up podcast from Carfest 2022. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being music food superstar and motor car festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org, carfest.org that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guest hosts and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Brydon, Jimmy Carr, Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, the actual village people, Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reapy, The Happy Pair, Melanie Sykes, The Feelings, Sophie Ellis Baxter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles, and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday weekend. All right, from that very event, let's cue a conversation, a fascinating conversation. Today's is entitled Cops and Culprits with Brian Capron, Ben Miller, Jed Mercurio and Philip Glenister. Hosted by Gabby Roslin discussing their roles as baddies and culprits and cops and goodies in TV and film. I like the way, oh thank you Tom, I like the way Ben's, look, look at him, made himself at home. <laughs> Welcome all of you. Can we have a round of applause for these fabulous gentlemen, please? (laughs) Now, because this is the first uh, chat on the Starfest stage today, are you all really comfortable? Are you? Shall Shall we do what we planned, guys? Come on, pop it on. Everybody stand up. Come on. Hmm? Right, put that music on. Everybody, up you get. Come on. when there's a bit of energy around. Right. So this is, it's, this is called Cops and Culprits. And I think the simpler way is goodies and baddies. But you all... So, Jed, we're going to come to you last because you've written for everybody. But you've all played... Well, actually, you've all played goodies. You've played the cops... You know all about cops because you grew up with a dad that was directing all the cops and everything. Do you think that that type of television still works today? Because it's just extraordinary how people are drawn into it, Philip. Oh, yeah, I think everybody loves a procedural drama, which is kind of what I refer them to. Um, you can see that from the viewing figures. So you've got a good story to tell and you've got good characters and good people to play them. 
then um, what's not to like, you know? And Brian, for you, you know, you the ultimate baddie in the in the greatest, <laughs> longest running um, uh, soap. Playing that, is that, for an actor, is that absolutely the type of character that you want? Is that the sort of type of character you leap for as an actor? Well, yes, I think um, the thing about playing a baddie, particularly that particular character, uh, was that it's so dramatic. And when you're thinking about being an actor, you kind of, you know, imagine, you know, when you're, I don't know, 17, 18, and you want to be an actor, you kind of think, oh, I'd love to be doing all these mad, crazy things, you know. And um, that particular role was so dramatic, you know. But at the same time, um, the great thing about it was it was almost a pantomime character. You could love to hate the character, but there was a lot of black humour, a lot of Corrie black humour in the character, you know. There was a moment, for instance, I remember, where I pass Audrey in the street, and she goes... Hello, Richard. And I go past, I go, goodbye, Audrey. Ooh. You know, it's, it's so, so it was such a fabulous character to play. It was beautifully written because, you know, without the writers, where are you? A guy called John Fay, who used to be a poet at one time, I understand. Um, he came from Brookside and he, he really drove the character because in Coronation Street, it's very writer-driven. And uh, when they used to say, where's Richard Hillman going to go next? He would go like that. And they go, well, really? Well, you go away and write it. And so it was very, very exciting for me. As you could tell, I'm not even bloody northern. I don't know what I was doing in the show. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, the, it's the mad thing about acting. You know, it's, it's, it, it, you, you, you'd suddenly do something that really you had no idea you'd ever be doing. I never thought I'd be doing Coronation Street, you know. We are going to talk about Grange Hill later. We've got to. I know that you weren't a cop in that, but we can. Uh, ben, for you, a lot of people, obviously, I like the way you're so comfortable. It's lovely. Um, for a lot of I people, insist on a chaise long wherever. I... <laughs> it's usually yellow, though. They, they usually yellow, I know. But, I know. You know. We have to make do. Beggars can't be choosers. Uh, a lot of people obviously knew you for the comedy. And then there you were in Death in Paradise. And there you were as a cop. Was it something that you wanted to go towards that time? Oh, hello. Uh, was it something that you wanted to go towards? Yes, definitely. And it's funny, just to go back to what Brian was saying. I think one of the th reasons we love these kind of shows is because there's something we know that lurking within every person is is the potential to kill. I mean, I think that's... <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what this is about, you know? And I think one of the reasons we're so interested to watch is we're thinking, could, 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 I, could I do something like that? And also, how do I spot people who might do something like that? So I think there's something... Is it just me? <laughs> I've lost them. No, on some level, you're sort of... You, you know, there's some really deep... Something very uh, deep about our, our fascination with these kinds of, of stories. And from the very beginning, detective stories have always dwelt on the, you know, the dark side. So sometimes the detective can also be the slightly dark character. Sometimes... It's a straightforward thing of trying to root out evil. Who's, who's the, uh, you know, is that thing where we sit there and you're, this is one of, one of the reasons I wanted to do this after, after doing comedy is I'd done some other dramatic acting and I never had any idea what I was supposed to be doing in a scene. I couldn't, and, and, and when, I, when I discovered detective drama, I thought, no, I get it. I'm supposed to be finding out who the murderer is. That I can, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing in every, in every scene. Because one of the things as an actor, I constantly 
you know, as Jed will know, actors are always going up to sort of directors and writers and saying, but, but, but why? why? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing You know, and here there's a, you know, so you can catch the murderer. What's my motivation? Yeah. <laughs> but for Jed, for you, as in the writer of some of the greatest ever, I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I am, the greatest ever TV. We're all doing this so we can get a job with Jeff. Okay. <laughs> We've all reduced our prices as well. <laughs> but Jed, there Ben was saying it's about um, everybody can be a murderer, which is slightly worrying when you look out to the audience. But is, surely that is that the place that you start, that anybody can be the baddie? Maybe that's a simpler way than the murderer. Well, I, I think that there are all kinds of different elements to it. I think that one of the most important things you get from crime stories is high stakes. That in drama, you're always looking to say, why should an audience watch this story? And if it's a story about where the stakes are very low, then it's harder for an audience to engage with what the character's objectives are. So if somebody, as Ben said, is is motivated to commit the, the most heinous crime imaginable, then you automatically create enormous stakes. Will they succeed? Will someone lose their life? Will the, will the killer get away with it? The killer will presumably work very hard to cover their tracks. People will work very hard to try and catch the killer. So you automatically get a lot of natural story that an audience firstly will engage with and secondly, you, you hope, will have a stake in themselves. Do you know what's going to happen at the end when you start at the beginning? Um, you just hope it'll never end. <laughs> <laughs> That's answered all the questions that I'm sure you want to know. Um, we're going to... Now, it's a Q&A, so please, at any time, if anybody wants to join in and ask any questions, that's why these guys are here. So please... Oh, we've already got a hand up right at the very... Oh, we've got loads of hands up. There's a lady right at the very back. She's waving madly. We've got my two hatties. So these lovely ladies are going to come forward. Can you keep waving? You've got a very flowery dress. We'll come back to you, sir, in the shirt. I've seen you. Right, yes. Yes. Hello, what's your name? Ray. Ray. Hello, Ray. Welcome. What would you like to ask? Did you bring the quattro? <laughs> it was for you, love. Did, did you bring the quattro? Did I bring the quattro? Um, I don't know. Did I? I did see one actually earlier, but they repainted it, resprayed it, so I don't know if it's mine. I loved that show. I thought you were great. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the, the gentleman down here, yes, sir. Hello. Hello. What's I'm your sorry. name? John. Hello, John. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but this is a really boring question, but I know it's the one that everyone wants the answer to. It's a question for Jed. I think he might have answered it in what he just said. <laughs> well, kind of. But will there? If so, when? And if not, how are you going to make it up to us? <laughs> um, we don't know. 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> Let's hear it for Jed Mercurio, everyone. <laughs> the best answer on the planet. That's the thing, though. When, when you've created, and for all of you, such memorable characters, written such memorable characters that have become such a huge part of our lives, and, and you know, people I know for all of you, because I'm lucky enough to interview well, you, you two many, many times, and Jed, but for Brian as well, People still think of you as those characters. They still come up and and talk to you as those characters. You very much lived in our in our sitting rooms, in our kitchens, and wherever in our bedrooms. You were well, maybe not, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> but that must be it. Must be frustrating sometimes, but also what what how flattering, incredible. I mean, for you, for you, Phil. I mean, that people will always go on about it. Of course they will. Those shows were yeah. magnificent. Well, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to balk at it for sure because it sort of um, propelled me to a different level of, of you know, of, of being an actor, doing my job. So it's been nothing but good. But, yes, there is a sort of side where people or the industry sort of just see you as this one character and it's quite hard to sort of... Um, you know, I, I kind of figure that I'd like to play another detective if possible before I'm retired off. You know what I mean? <laughs> All of that age. So, um, but no, it, it's the fact that people still remember it. It, it sort of touched so many people. Um, it, I mean, it's always down to, I always say it's down to the writers. They're the only people in our business that actually start with a blank page. You know, everybody else, every other department, whether it's directing, uh, production design, sound, whatever, all have something to go from, and that's come from the writer. So we're kind of indebted in that respect. Not crawling or anything, no, no. Jed, or want a job. <laughs> you, you just owe, remember what I said, okay? You owe, <laughs> you owe me nothing. <laughs> yeah. so, but, so then you do take Ben, for you. Ben. Yeah, I miss, I really miss the character that I played in Death in Paradise. I mean, I miss... I miss the character too, because in my case, I got murdered in my own show. <laughs> now, this is the dark side of writers, <laughs> because uh, I, I, you know, I was only signed up for three seasons, and Tony Jordan, I think, and uh, um, decided, to basically, just decided to to do something. I don't, I don't know if it had been done in shows before, but yeah, decided to actually murder me in my own show. But then the really clever bit was he then had my character sort of solve the murder sort of from messages yeah, and beyond the grave. It was kind of a really, really clever thing. Anyway, I really miss that person. I really miss Richard. Bull I mean, I don't know if you miss Jean. Means miss but, miss Jean. Ben, were you, you either? Know, do you miss? Were you too difficult or were you too expensive? Right? <laughs> <laughs> or both? It's a toxic combination of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, are you like that as as well? Do you miss Richard? <laughs> <laughs> miss that murderer. Uh, well, you, you miss the uh, excitement of playing such a dramatic role. Um, I did just over, what, 200 episodes in less than two years. Yeah. The pressure was unbelievable because they went to five episodes a week while I was doing it. And so you just spend your whole life with this character learning lines, learning lines, because in a soap, it turns around so quickly. Um, 
So uh, it, was, it was just, I was like in a pressure cooker for two years, really. Funnily enough, though, the first, I, I was only signed on for six months and the character was a bit cheesy and wasn't really working and I was going to get sacked, I think. And then suddenly everything changed. The executive producer changed and the, produce, and, and the producer brought in new writers and writers that had left. And suddenly they decided to focus on this character and it, it was just, uh, it just kind of took off. But living with it afterwards, it's been fantastic. I mean, I haven't, I haven't achieved the heights that some people have, but I've had nearly 20 years career because of Richard Hillman, and I'm really knocking on now. I've been doing this for 50-odd years, you know, and I'm very, very grateful to Richard. But a few years before that, I played a character in Grain Chill. I played oh, a teacher. Yes! Yeah. We, gonna, we had to go there. Oh. And... and um, my agent made me come out of that show after four series. She said, you're not doing any... And I had young kids and I thought, what? Leaving it? And my stomach turned over. She said, yes, you don't want to be a nice teacher for the rest of your career, do you? And I went, oh, oh, all right then, you know. So I left, never thinking that I'd end up with the direct opposite character completely <laughs> in playing <laughs> this psychopathic murderer and get typecast And I know this is way. meant to be cops and culprits, but... You know, Grain Chill was a seminal show for so many of us. At that and, time. Yeah, it really was. Wonderful show to be in. And I, I, I learned a lot because it was the first time that they used, like, really natural children, I think, because before that, they were mostly stage school children. And um, I, they were so natural, I, I wanted to be as natural as them. And I, I learned from them. So I tried to make my character very informal and a very listening character so that I would come across as natural as they did. So it taught me a lot as an actor in my you know, early career. But also it gets uh, younger people into watching those sort of things. I mean, Jed, lots of the shows that you do, um, it's, I know it's a strange thing to say, but it is family viewing. You know, you'll sit down with the family, you will discuss who everybody thinks is the bad guy, whoever whoever that character is. I mean, it's it, it draws people in. And actually, play, things like um, Grange Hill and the soap operas are a great starting place to get people in and to get writers thinking like that as well. Do you think that it's important for, for drama for kids to carry on? Because there's not a lot of it anymore, which is a shame. Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I think that... Um it's become so much more international now and a lot of the content that's aimed at kids isn't necessarily homegrown. Um, and obviously there, there are upsides to that because a lot of it is excellent viewing. But I, I watched Grange Hill as a kid and um, it, what resonated with me was that it kind of reflected my experience of, of school life. And, and I think that that was a, a way of making um, people choose to watch TV at an early age because if they're watching dramas that appear to be about their lives and their communities, it's, it's one of the ways in which TV reaches people rather than being completely escapist. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor. Dr. Andrew Schieberman, 
Tim Ferriss and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and has helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now. He swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality, all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and much more in one simple drinkable habit ag1 is great bang for my book as it replaces a lot of these other supplements like a daily multivitamin minerals pre and probiotics for my gut health adaptogens and a greens blend literally all in one scoop of powder i think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop science-driven formulation of vitamins probiotics and whole food source nutrients ag1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition i need Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. Um, Phil, if we may just uh, mention briefly about your father. He was a director of uh, Softly Softly and many other uh, shows on television. So was it always inevitable for you and your brother to end up in the industry? Was it um, a happy choice? Well, no, I mean, uh, my brother, Robert, um, he, he knew he wanted to act from quite an early age and he joined the youth theatres and he did school productions. But no, I, I you know, I did, um, I think I played uh, Oliver Twist when I was about 11 because I was the most the skinniest kid in the class at the time. Um, and I had to sing that god-awful Where Is Love song. <laughs> I used to have, we used to have this big clock at the back of the assembly hall, and I had this um, teacher called Mrs. Brooks, and like, she used to put me off every night, because she'd be right under the clock going like this. <laughs> and it used to throw me. I just thought, what is this woman doing? She's in my eyeline, love. You know. Um, At then, 11, you went, she's in my eyeline, love. She's in my eyeline, love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leave the room. Get her out of the room. Um, so, yeah, but it was... Um, but then I, then I went to a school where we had a headmaster who was obsessed for some reason with Gilbert and Sullivan. I mean, this was a comprehensive in the 1970s, you know? A just like Grange comprehensive. Hill. Exactly, just like Grange Hill. I don't remember Grange Hill covering, you know, um, Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> you know? And it, they just cast all the teachers in the main roles, and we'd just be like sort of no. the, the, the sort of walk-ons, the extras, you know? And it, was, and it sort of put me off for a long time. And then, cut a long story short, one thing led to another. Um, I, I got asked to do a sort of pantomime for a local group at a, as a bet in the pub. Came on, nearly knocked, nearly took out the first row of Cub Scouts by knocking over a piece of scenery. Got a huge laugh and thought, hey, this is all right, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I've never looked back. <laughs> Love that. Ben, how, how did you get started? Yeah, quite, I mean, strangely similar. I didn't do any um, drama at school. I was more interested in physics. Yes. <laughs> We know because your wonderful books. I was talking to Jed about this before because you were you were into physics as well when you were growing up. Um, yeah, I went to um, the. It was the same situation, funnily enough. The the plays that were put on at my school, it was would often be the teachers or the parents who'd be the the main parts. And, and and if I'm really honest, it just wasn't something that I was kind of that interested in. And then I was doing my PhD. Uh, and um, you know it was a bit of light relief from the semiconductor (laughs) physics department I thought 
why don't I audition for a play? I never did that at school. I wonder what that's like. And I got a part as Cassio in a production of Othello. Cassio's the one who gets set up by Iago. Um, and uh, I think Iago steals his handkerchief. Can't remember the exact plot. Never really understood it when I was doing it. <laughs> I came on as Cassio. I had not said a word and people started laughing. <laughs> it's a straight part in a very serious play. <laughs> and I was very, very annoyed. And then the second night I came on and they did it again. And like, like, <laughs> like you were just saying, I thought to myself, I wonder if there's something in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and here I am. Yeah. And uh, Jed, for you, how did, obviously you didn't start out as, as a writer, but, but when it happened, when that moment happened and you knew you could create these extraordinary characters and write so brilliantly. When was that moment, that light bulb moment? Oh, I think I'm still waiting for it. Um. <laughs> Listen, trust me, I think you've had it, really. And you're, keeping, you're keeping it. I, I, I honestly don't think that way. I, I, you know, I really enjoy what I do and I'm, I'm very grateful to be in this privileged position to do something that... Yeah, but how did it start? Um... Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I did physics and, <laughs> and then, um, I, I actually then went to medical school and joined the Air Force and I was going to do aviation medicine. Um, and I enjoyed flying planes and, and I thought I would just do research into um, the physiological challenges of military aviation for the rest of my life. <laughs> Um, and I'd hope to get back into that at some point. Um, but, um, yeah, I just responded to an ad in the British Medical Journal. They were looking for advisors to, uh, for a medical show that was in development. Um, and I wanted to talk to them about what it was like in the NHS at that time, which was the mid-90s. Um, and they just felt it was something they'd never seen on TV. So then I started contributing more than just advice, storylines, and then they asked if I'd write a script, and I did, and it kind of went from there. So I, I never really kind of had a light bulb moment. It, it just... Found you. It just it kind of you. happened. I love that. Brian, did you study physics? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no. I, I, I was at a, a grammar school, and in those days, you didn't even do, um, you didn't have drama on the curriculum. You did school plays. And what's happened throughout my career, I think, the only reason I got any career at all is because people drop out and people look around desperately and think, "Oh, he'll do," you know. Um, so the main guy playing uh, John Proctor in The Crucible, a fabulous play by Arthur Miller, he suddenly left school, and. Uh, they looked around and my English teacher said, oh, uh, oh, Capron can do it, you know. So I, I played this part and I, I was so naive. On the first night, I didn't realise that people applauded at the end, you know. And they kind of pushed me forward because it kind of went quite well. And I felt the audience kind of, the applause grow warmer, you know. And I thought, whew, that's nice. And then someone said, you should go to a thing called a drama school, you know. Because I, I just lived on, a, on an estate in Staines, you know. I didn't know how you became an actor. And a friend of mine, he also wanted to be an actor. And he found out about drama schools. And eventually I, I, uh, I auditioned for Lambda and somehow I got in. And... Uh, so that's been uh, 52 years later, you know, so that was... <laughs> that's wonderful. I love hearing all that. Any more questions? Yes. Oh, wow. Lots of arms up. I saw yours first. We will come to you. We'll come to you as well. Uh, the gentleman with the glasses on his head, please. Yes. Hello. What's your name? Hi, I'm Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hi. Um, this is a question probably to all three of the actors. Is there a part that you've auditioned for that you didn't 
get that you wanted so badly? If they'd like to admit it if in front like of everybody. they'd like to admit it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ben, should we start with you? Where do we start, darling? <laughs> Where do we start? Um, I was up for a part that Mark Ruffalo played in one of my favourite, favourite films called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless mm. Mind. Now, I'm not saying I got anywhere near... Um, you know, nobody contacted me after I <laughs> I made my audition. But that, that sometimes there's there's things like that, and you think, oh, oh, I just love that film. I just love love the film, and I would have loved loved to have been a part of that. Um, and then you know, yeah, there are kind of um, there was a I can't remember which film it was, but it was a Ben. Ben Stiller film. It would be awkward, wouldn't it? Ben Stiller, Ben Miller. I think it would be confusing. I think the studio were worried it would be confusing. Um, and uh, Will Ferrell got it. I honestly don't know what happened to him after that. Um, but yeah, good. You know, I hope he's. I hope he's. He's probably. He's probably running a stall. Um. <laughs> Second from the right. Yeah. Well. Hey, Will. <laughs> Brian, how about you? Anything you'd like to admit? Uh, um, no. Well, I, one of the biggest disappointments I had early on was I, I, I did a comedy show in in the in the eighties called Full House, which ran for three years. It was quite popular, but it didn't. And I wanted to move away from comedy after that because everybody, I didn't want to get stuck doing that. And suddenly, I landed a role in a, a big production at Thames Television called Jack the Ripper. And the main character was played by Barry Foster. He was the inspector. And I was the sidekick, um, which was a fantastic part because it was really the whole three-part series was we were going to be the central figures. And they wanted to be a bit like Minder to have that relationship. And we worked on it for... We rehearsed for about four weeks. And we shot the first two, two weeks of film. And then... Um, Somebody decided that it would be much better to reshoot it um, on 35mm. The Americans came over to make it a four-part miniseries with Michael Caine playing Barry Foster's part and Lewis Collins playing my part. <laughs> so Ooh. so Ooh. what happened one day was the producer rang me up and said, oh, Brian, have you heard that something terribly exciting has happened? And I said, well, he said we're going we're to make it a four-part on 35mm. And I said, will you still be keeping on? Oh, yes, darling, don't worry, don't worry, you'll, you'll be in it, no worry. And the next thing I knew was, I, in the first place, I was chosen partly because I was the same height as Barry Foster because Michael Caine was so tall, they put in him. So I was suddenly completely bereft, you know. I, oh, I, no. Yeah, I, I, it was, it was, it was a very... Look what your question has done. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, Philip, any that you'd like to make? Uh, well, I suppose one that springs to mind was um, that series Hustle, which my brother ended up being, but I didn't go... <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Rain it in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go up to that part. I went up to the Adrian Lester part, the main chap. And, um, and I didn't get that. And I loved the script and I got a recall and everything. And then I was quite disappointed to not get it. And I was on holiday in France. And then I got, um, at the same time, this series called Island at War, where I played a sort of Nazi officer in the invasion of the Channel Islands. And then, the, for, then that got cancelled after one season. And then that's how Life on Mars came up. Uh -huh. with the same production company that did Hustle. Uh -huh. So it was kind See, of, um, you know, something divine or whatever you want to call it, sort of fate. So, and, and you know. 
Jed, for for you, do you what do you write with a with an actor in mind, or do you, is that left to the to the very end and a group of you get together, or do you have somebody focused? You think I know, I want to write for them. Generally not, because um, in TV, when you get to the point of agreeing with a broadcaster when they want the thing on air it determines exactly the dates that you have to shoot it. So you have no idea whether the, the actor you um, were aiming for will even be available uh, for the production. So it's a quite a, sometimes it can be quite frustrating to kind of invest so much in the idea of a particular actor. But then, you know, occasionally it does happen that someone's talked about and you kind of reach out and, and as it happens, they will be free for what the projected dates are. And, and then that's lovely when that happens. Fits perfectly. Um, yes, next question. Yes, sir. What's your name? <sighs> Hello, Mark. Um, a question for Ben, sorry. Um, how would you Don't apologise. Okay, <laughs> um, never apologise. Yeah. No. Um, how do you clash yourself? Um, obviously, you've written, you've done comedy work, uh, you've acted. Um, if you look at America with American comedians, they're, they're comedic actors. Um, would you clash yourself as that, or have you got another thing to your bow? Children's um, author as well. Best-selling author. Best-selling author. Thank you, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly forgot that. <laughs> I I love acting. I just love acting. I love playing characters. And to me, it doesn't make any difference whether it's a comedy or a drama. To begin with, I got cast mainly in 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 comedies, and I was really really happy with that. And then there, I think there came a point where. Um, I just started getting asked to audition for dramas. I've been really, really thrilled to do that too. But for me, I think this distinction that everybody... It's true, people make that distinction, don't they, between comedy and drama. I think it's, this, you know, it's the same thing. I think they're really good, good comedy actors. It's the same job, basically. Um, but I just love playing characters. And I particularly love playing characters that I, have, like, I feel like I haven't played before I guess um, and that's not as as the other actors and I'm sure Jed knows as well it's not it's not it's not easy it tends to it tends to be that whatever you've done that's what you'll get almost the identical thing is what you'll then uh, people will think of you to do to do next so sometimes that's a bit you know that's a bit tricky but I think uh, on the whole we're all doing this I think we're all doing the same job whether it's you know I mean Brian has talked about playing you know, really evil characters and then incredibly honourable characters. It's, it's the same job. You're seeing it all through the eyes of that person and you're... And, and, it, and bad, so-called bad characters or evil characters, they don't think they are. They're just under a unique set of circumstances where they're doing, they're doing their best, you know. Anyway, have a laugh. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any more questions? Yes, lady with the hat. The hat... One of the hatties will come over and... Hand the mic over to you. Gorgeous hat you have on. Thank you. What's your name, please? Kirsty. Hello. Hello. My question is about, so in my work, my friends that I've grown over the years with, I've met them all at work. And in my head, I have this lovely image that the, the shows that you're all in and that you've presented to us where you have relationships with other actors and, you know, we, we all believe in that show. 
does the show finish and then that's it? End of friendship, never speak to them again? Or how many of you... <laughs> uh, how many of you have they continued to stay in touch or is that a question you're never Look supposed at them, they're to turning, ask? They're, did you see the smile that came on? Yes. Oh, we all call each other darling. <laughs> you do, but you lots of... I mean, you, you all... You are, you do stay friends. It's a very tight relationship when you're working on something, actually for Jed as well. For when you're with a team of people, it's... And everybody always uses... When I interview any of you, you always say it's like a family. But it seems to be that it is like that, Philip. Well, I, I mean, it is, it's, it's your family for that period of time, especially if you're filming away on location. You know, you've all got each other, so they do become, everybody becomes very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think it would have been possible to stay in touch with everybody you sort of work with over the years because other, you know, nobody has that many friends, do they? Uh, um, but, um, you know, but I certainly, I've, I've, I'm great mates with John, Sim, John and I, we, we had worked together on a couple of things before that, but obviously we really got to know each other well on, on Life on Mars. So I've always kept a very close friendship with John, I would say, he's the closest. Arriving. That's John now drumming his arrival, here is it. That's what he always has wherever he goes, the whole drum set. Uh, Brian, is it the same? Uh, Max same Beasley yeah. on drums. <laughs> Brian, are you still in touch with the people that you've worked with in the past? Well, you do so many different things. Uh, and um, as Phil said, you know, you're very tight with those people at that time. But I guess just a full few people fall through the hoop that you stay in touch with for a long, long time. You know, I'm, I'm still in touch with a couple of people right back to my drama school days, you know, so that's over 50 years, if you like. Um, but um, I think what you, tend, what you tend to do is the particular people that you particularly get on with, and also if they live near you, that, that, that helps. I live Makes in, it easier. I live in Brighton, and there's quite a few actors down there, and there's two or three, I've got, you know, close friends down there. But you bump into people again during the industry, and, and it's lovely if you work with somebody because it gives you a little bit of a bridge into the re everybody else in that particular company, but it's um, it is a close it's a close feeling, and uh, it's it, it's just uh, if you have a reasonable success as an actor, it's it's just a wonderful feeling that that you know all these other people uh, over the years, and it's a, they're a very colourful lot as well, of course. <laughs> I do apologise about the drumming. That's timing for you. We're nearly finishing. Have we got any more questions? Anybody else? Yes, gentlemen, there in the yellow t-shirt. Hello. Hello. My What's name your name? I'm Jack. Hello, Jack. My question for us for Ben. Ben, you're a very good protective Devil Paradise. How made you feel to be a detective? How did I feel playing the detective? Yeah. Um, well, I loved... The reason I loved uh, playing that character, there's something very special about that character that... Um, I was always very careful not to talk about in interviews to keep it kind of secret and private. And that was that the um, that he's basically he's on the uh, he has ASC and he can't read people's emotions. So what I used to do with my partner Camille, we had a little private thing, and whenever we'd be in a scene. I would, my character would be unable to read the emotions of, of the other characters in the scene. And I would look constantly to Camille, we had this very close relationship, for her to tell me whether she thought they were telling the truth or not. And it really, really, I, I think, gives something very uh, special uh, to the character. And for me, 
um, I don't know, it just, it, 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 it's quite nice when you're playing a character to have a little secret that you don't really share necessarily with the other actors. Um, definitely not with the writer, that would be a disaster. <laughs> uh, but uh, to have something, a little, a little secret, maybe between you and somebody else, and I think it gives, it gives a little uh, spark of life that wouldn't be there otherwise. So I did love playing that, I loved playing the character, and that was one of the main reasons. Thank you, Jack, that was a lovely question. Uh, Jed, good. can I just, uh, do you tell the actors when, because it's the, the storylines that you weave are so intricate, um, and we can never guess them. We all think we can, but do the actors know where the story's going, or do you keep something back from them? Um, it varies. I, I, I tell them stuff they, they absolutely need to know. Um, but a lot of it is just in, it, practical stuff about um, when the scripts are issued, we, when they're ready um, to share with the, the cast and crew is, is when they've gone through lots of drafts and they've been approved by the production company and the broadcaster. So there are a lot of stages before the actors even get the scripts. So if, I, if the scripts haven't reached them yet, but I think there's stuff they need to know, then I'll just tell them. I'll just say, um, as it turns out, everything you're saying in the first few episodes about this event is a lie. An actor needs to know that. They oh, they to, do? Yeah. They need to know they're lying, yeah. There's no, because they have to play the, the truth of the scene. They have to play... The, the the character has to have a, a, a their own realistic version of the event. So I have to explain to them what really happened, and then they know when they're lying, when they're not. And then obviously with the directors and so on, we talk about how clear it needs to be that they're lying or not. But it's 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 hugely important. Right, one of your actors always said to me he had no idea that it was him. Ah, so he did. Um, thank you very much indeed. Uh, everybody, thank you so much. Can you please give these wonderful gentlemen... Wait, hold on. Hold on, sorry, I completely forgot. I completely forgot. Jed, have they passed the audition? Oh. And have they passed the audition? They've, they've or... each got their own show. Yes, fabulous. <laughs> now you can give them a round of applause. Thank you all very much. Apart from you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Have a great time at Carfest. Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for listening to Cops and Culprits with Brian Capron, Ben Miller, Jeb McCurry, and Philip Glenster, hosted by Gabby Roslin. All recorded live at Carfest 2022. If you'd like to come to Carfest 2023 for much more, much more of the same on our biggest ever Carfest, go to carfest.org.